in 2 Samuel chapter 9, not 1 Samuel 27. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David is in a good place. Before we, we do that, let me just ask God's blessing on the, on the word here. Lord, this is your word. And it's not my word. And I've said many times from this place, I'm just learning this too. And we all are coming together to sit at your feet and learn from you and be taught by your spirit. I thank you, Father, that I get the privilege of studying ahead of time, but there is so much I don't even understand as I'm studying, so much I don't get until I get here. And then many things I don't understand, Lord, till three or four days from now when I'll go, oh, why didn't I say that? And Father, this is your word. And your word is true. And it is right and good. And it is grace to us. So I pray, Spirit of the living God, that we would, all of us, be open to hear from you tonight and to understand your word and comprehend why these, these things are here and this history is here and what this history speaks to us uh, application-wise in our lives right now. And we come to you, Father, all of us together, and we thank you for your word to us. And we pray that you'd teach us in Jesus' name, amen. David is in a good place. And don't worry about the screens, we'll get that all figured out in a moment here. But the Lord had, we're told, given him rest on every side. Right? Chapter seven, verse one, the Lord had given David rest on every side. Chapter eight, verse 15, we're told that David reigned over all Israel, administering justice and righteousness for all his people. Translation, by the time we open up to chapter nine of 2 Samuel, all is well in the kingdom. You say all is right with the world. And, and David, for his part, first thing on his mind as he comes to that place of rest, we talked about on Sunday, he wants to build a permanent structure for the ark, a, a house for the Lord. And he's really excited about this and thinking about building a temple there in Jerusalem, and the Lord declines, right? Tells Natan the prophet, go back to David and declare to him what we now today call the Davidic covenant, that covenant of God with David that is still in play, yet to be completely fulfilled. It's the promise of an eternal ascendancy. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter seven is the reason why we have called this entire study the eternal ascendancy. An ascendancy is a reign. It's not ascending, it's you've already ascended. You are now ruling and reigning. The ascendancy of David is where he's at right now. The ascendancy of Jesus is what's coming and it's an eternal ascendancy, the rule and reign of the Messiah. And David recognized it then, we are yet looking for it now. But before we get to David's next move, which is chapter nine, picking up, I need to clarify something out of chapter seven. So I want you to go back to chapter seven, and it's something that I, that I mentioned on Sunday, but I really wanna make clear because it is, I think, critical to moving forward in the narrative of 2 Samuel. In chapter seven, down in verse 15, God makes the statement in this great covenant, my loving kindness, my chesed, my grace, shall not depart from him. And he's talking about Messiah. My loving kindness shall not depart from him. And then he says in verse 16, your house and your kingdom, David, shall endure before me ad olam, forever. 
Your throne shall be established, ad olam, forever. This is the promise that God made to David. And so David is just overwhelmed, right? His mind is blown. He was gonna build a little temple for God in Jerusalem, and the Lord is saying, I'm gonna build you a dynasty that's eternal. And David responds with this overwhelming gratitude. He, he says in verse 18 of chapter seven, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? I mean, even to be sitting here in my palace, Lord, why me, he's saying. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. For you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. David recognizes this is a long-term prophecy. This is not fulfilled in David's rule here and now. This is way out there in the distant future. And then he says this, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. And it's one of those sentences you read and go, well, that's weird, and you move on. Don't move on. This is the custom of man, O Lord God. What in the world does that mean? And there have been so many interpretations of what is meant by, and this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Let's be really clear that the word custom there, or maybe your Bible says this is the manner of man, O Lord God. Some Bibles would say this is the law of man. The, Lord, the, the word is Torah, from Torah. He's saying this is the Torah. But not the Torah as in, what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures. No, Torah, the Torah, this is it. This is our law. This is the law of all man. He, he says of man, the law of man, Adam, he's talking about everyone, not just Jews. This is the law, the custom, the manner of all humanity. So what is David's, what is the manner of all humanity? What is the law? What is the custom of all humanity that David is speaking to here? And I'm gonna take a word straight out of uh, Kyle and Delich. I've mentioned these guys before. 18th century, late 18th century uh, German uh, scholars, these guys nailed the Old Testament. I mean, it's one of the best places you can go to understand stuff that's difficult to understand. They were Hebrew scholars. And so they said, the meaning of these words, that is, this is the custom of man, O Lord God. The meaning of these words, which have been very differently interpreted, cannot, with the context immediately preceding it, be anything other than the following. So they're confident this is what it means. Namely, that the love and condescension manifested in God's treatment of his servant David is the law which applies to man. Let me read that again that the love and condescension manifested in God's treatment of his servant David is the law which applies to all humanity. Now, I love their use of the word condescension. They don't use it like we typically think. The love and condescension of God, a condescension can, can mean being arrogant and looking down on someone condescendingly. That's not what they mean. Their use of condescend is not from a place of arrogance. It's simply from a place of great height. That for God to look upon David, he has to condescend. He has to come down to where David is. For God to look upon you or look on me and love us as we just sang, how he loves us, he, that, that is the ultimate act of condescension. 
Not arrogant condescension, but coming from a great height. And he explains it himself, Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God condescends to give grace. God condescends to love. Love condescends. I'm gonna repeat that many times tonight. Love, true love condescends. God's treatment of David and of his house must apply to all people. That's what David is saying here. It gets a little clearer in the parallel passage, which is over in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 17. i just read the verse to you. David says there, this was a small thing in your eyes, O God, but you have spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come and have regarded me according to the standard of a man of high degree, O Lord God. You've treated me the way a man of high standing, high degree, must be seen. This is the law for all mankind. It's the law for me as a man of high standing. What is David saying? Love condescends. David's understanding something, that the greater the person, the more he must, the lower he must condescend to love other people. The greater the position of the individual, the more they must condescend to love others. Love in the highest is love most humble. And this is why when we were singing, he loves us, and, and I began to pray. I, I, couldn't, I, was, I couldn't find words, because how do you describe the love of God? Other than Calvary, other than seeing Jesus on the cross, other than hearing him speak his last breath, it is finished. How do you describe the love of the highest exalted God beyond even our comprehension? How do we describe his love coming all the way down to care about us and to love us. And this is what is on David's mind. It's Leviticus 19, 18. Here's the law of man, the law for all man that David's referring to. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Leviticus 19, 18 ends, I am the Lord. That's why. You shall love your neighbor as yourself because I am God. Yeah, and I loved you. And if God can so condescend to love us, then the law for us, the law for all humanity is to love each other. It's to love the way God loves. David sees this. He hears this Davidic covenant in chapter seven, and he sees the kindness, the grace of God, and he calls it, that's it. That's the law of man. That is the highest standard for all who receive the grace of God from the Lord Jesus Christ. If I receive Jesus, I must love like Jesus. A new commandment I give to you, he said, that you love one another even as I have loved you. That's the deal. That's the love that condescends. You love each other. John, 1 John 4, 19, he said, we love because he first loved us. Now, it's interesting because we're gonna circle around to a few verses that you have heard many, many times over the last few months. And I, I, you know, I don't always know why. These are the verses that come as I'm studying or the verses that come up, and maybe you just need to hear them again, but we love because he loved us. We don't love because we figure out how to do it or because we're so good at it. We love because he loved us. 
And so our love isn't condescending as in arrogant, oh, I'll love you pitiful poor folk. No, it's, it's our love condescends to love the least lovable, the most unlovable, because God loved me. And it completely changes our perspective of life. The ascendancy of Jesus that we're talking about, that great reign and rule of Jesus that we will see, that we will fully experience, it began with the greatest condescension of all eternity, God coming down among us as a man. And when we see such love, when we understand such amazing grace, we can't help but extend it to others. That's what comprehending amazing grace does is it makes you wanna give grace to others. And that's where we find David, in fact, starting in chapter nine now, that explains David's very next move. Verse one of chapter nine, David said, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And yes, the word kindness there noted in your Bibles is grace. Is there anyone to whom I can show grace? David is is literally wheeling in this idea, reeling that he has been shown such amazing grace that God has established him at this point and will establish his house forever. He he can hardly believe it. So he turns around and says, who can I show grace to? Is there anyone I can extend this same level of grace to? Love condescends. Anyone left of the house of Saul? God's grace produces my grace. And David is so moved to such condescension that he asked the question. And he also remembers a covenant that he made. He made a covenant with Jonathan not to wipe out Jonathan's house. Remember, kings of the nations in those days, if you rose to be a king, you killed off everybody of the previous king's house. You wiped out the sons and the children. Take them out, kill them all, so that you don't have anyone that could threaten your rule. And it was accepted practice. It's just what they did. You're gonna see it happen in First and Second Kings. Kings of Israel wiping out the family of other kings before them. It's, it's bloodthirsty, it's brutal, it's boorish. And yet David says, who can I show kindness to? Who can I show chesed? Verse two, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. He's not a good guy, but we don't have to worry about that yet named Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, your servant. And the king said, is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And and there it is, there it is, the kindness of God. So David knows where the source of his grace is coming from. It's coming from God's grace. I wanna show him the grace of God as I've been shown the grace of God. And Ziba said to the king, there's still a son of Jonathan who's crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? Ziba said to the king, behold, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. And that tells us all we need to know of a very sad, pathetic picture. There's one offspring left here. One son of Jonathan, grandson of Saul. He's crippled and he lives in Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. It also means no word. And this is a place where this village east of the Jordan River is nothing to speak of. <laughs> no word. Lodabar. Why is he there? Probably hiding out. 
being cared for in this house because now he's crippled. He can't get up on his feet and run. He can't be on the move. So he's hiding out on the other side of the Jordan River in this pastureless place. And it's not a pretty pasture, but picture. This son of Jonathan is a cripple in a dry, dead place. Now, I, I, I understand it's offensive in today's language, and I'm having trouble keeping up, trust you me. It's offensive to use the word cripple. We have a, a whole list of politically correct words to use, but I'm gonna call it as I see it. This guy was crippled. He was in a dry, desolate, gloomy, pathetic situation. He can't even walk. His legs are useless. He's the grandson of the former king. And by the way, we've already met him. In fact, we know why he can't walk. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 told us that Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan being killed came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled and it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Which I gotta tell you honestly is one of my favorite names in all of scripture, because Mephibosheth is me. And Mephibosheth is you. Before Jesus, cripples in a dead, dry place. In fact, it's worse than that. He was disabled at the age of five, but he may not have done a whole lot of running around and playing before then. Why? Because his name Mephibosheth means breath of shame. Breath of shame. Why would you name a child breath of shame? It's like naming a kid with bad breath halitosis. This is my son Hal. <laughs> Some suggest that the reason he's called breath of shame Mephibosheth, is because he had asthma. In fact, that's well-believed among scholars that because Jewish people called it as they saw it, right? And if a child was born in a certain condition, oftentimes the name would reflect that condition. So he may have been born an asthmatic infant. And when they saw that and realized it, they said, breath of shame, kick and hardly even breathe. And it's very likely. Some suggest that that. That's why the nurse was carrying him at the age of five in the first place instead of having him run on his own because he had asthma and she's trying to flee out of the house. So she picks him up and starts to run with this asthmatic child and somehow she trips, he falls, he cracks his legs and now he can't even walk. However you look at it, Mephibosheth is in a pathetic position where he can't even do for himself. So he has to live at the house of, of, of Makir, at low Debar. Anyone having trouble breathing? Any of you having trouble walking? You feel lame? You ever been dropped by somebody or hurt by another person? Let me ask you a more pointed question. Any of anyone here still wearing that shame? The shame of a hurt before? of a problem, of a condition, of a life lived up till now. I hear this question probably more, and I've mentioned it before, probably more than any other question that I hear. What if I'm not good enough? What if my missteps or my lameness leave me in a dead, dry place? What if I haven't done enough? 
shown up enough, memorized enough scripture, followed closely enough to what God wants? What if I've missed something? Listen to me. I got to say this loud and clear. You need to receive grace. You need to receive grace because without grace, you're crippled. And there are a lot of Christians who are still limping. A lot of followers of Jesus who, because of, I don't know, perhaps, and I don't mean to to downplay this, but perhaps past hurts or religious upbringing or non-religious upbringing, that there's a lot of sense of lameness still in us. You need to receive grace. You need to accept the grace of God that was blood bought for you by Jesus. There is nothing more precious. There is nothing more potent or powerful. And listen, you can't limp your way into heaven. You can't crawl into the gates. And that's what we do when we think that we can do enough to save ourselves or when we're worried that we haven't done enough to save ourselves, we keep crawling around in dead places in the flesh. We're Mephibosheth can't walk in the spirit, much less breathe. By the way, remember ruach in the Hebrew, pneuma in the Greek is spirit. It also means breath. Some people have trouble following Jesus walking in the spirit because they're not breathing in the spirit because they're still looking at their idiosyncrasies and problems and hurts from before and still limping along. So we're not even able to walk in the spirit. Listen, please hear me tonight if this is you. The king is sending for you. King is calling for you. And the king has a word of grace and love and mercy for you. Look at verse five. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. Now, this scene, again, talk about a pathetic scene. I don't mean pathetic like more lame. I mean sad. If he's already lame, he would have had to have been carried in before David, right? Uh, held up somehow, but as they bring him in before David, he lets loose perhaps of whoever's got hold of him and he just falls down. He prostrated himself. He's lying flat out before David and he's terrified. Why? He's a grandson of Saul. He's a dead man. The king called me because he's gonna kill me. So now this crippled asthmatic is dead, lying on the ground before David. And David David said to him, Mephibosheth, and he said, here is your servant, and he said to him, do not fear. He had to say do not fear because he sees a man who is terrified before him. Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness, grace to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. And again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? That's the language of insignificance. Why would you do this for me? I'm a dead dog. In Israel, to be called a dog was bad enough. You know, it's not like in our culture, she's a dog, <laughs> That's, which is not nice, right? Right? In Israel, for anyone to call someone else a dog 
or the Romans to call you, oh, you Jewish dog. It was an absolute insult, a mongrel is what it means. This is far worse. It's bad enough to be called a dog. He's now saying, I'm a dead dog. I'm roadkill. I'm worth nothing. And I wonder when he said this, I wonder if it tugged at David's heart. Because somehow, Mephibosheth, now I'm guessing a little bit here, but it's so interesting he uses this phrase, somehow he had heard perhaps that David said the same thing. Back in 1 Samuel 24, do you remember Saul is pursuing David? Calls him up out of the, out of the caves, out of the hill, and David comes down. 1 Samuel 24, 14, it says, after whom is the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? You almost wonder if Mephibosheth at some point in his early childhood heard Saul laughing or talking about David as a dead dog. Regardless of where it comes from, Mephibosheth is absolutely crippled, breathless, and ashamed before David. And David starts pouring out grace, offers him kindness, huge kindness. And he's trying to understand it. By the way, Mephibosheth, which means breath of shame, can also be translated blow away shame, to scatter shame, which is what David does here for this this crippled man. If you want to jot down some notes, this is the first thing to note. Love condescends to remove all shame. Love condescends to remove all shame. It's what Jesus did when he quoted, when he drew off of Isaiah 61, applying it to himself at the very beginning of his ministry. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Is that you, afflicted, brokenhearted? Are you captive? That's Mephibosheth. That's why I say we're Mephibosheth. That's us before Jesus. And yet he says, that's why I came. And David is exemplifying this to show this kind of grace, to condescend, to remove all shame as he does. Jesus owned that verse as he began his ministry. He's there in the synagogue of Nazareth and he quotes Isaiah 61, says, this is me, this is my anointing. I've come to the brokenhearted and I've come to the afflicted. That's why I'm here. And then we see Matthew 15, verse 30. Large crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet and he healed them. Because love condescends to remove all shame. All of these illnesses would have left people in shameful places in Jewish society, but Jesus heals them. He restores them completely. Says the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored and the lame walking and the blind seeing and they glorified the God of Israel. So Jesus comes and that's how he begins his first coming. That's what he he expresses he begins the process of removing shame in his first coming. It's interesting because he stops short of telling the rest of the promise that he will fulfill in his second coming. I know you want to hear it. Let me read it to you. I also came to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, 
to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Jesus goes on, well, the, the prophet Isaiah, but this is Jesus speaking through Isaiah. It says, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers, but you will be called the priests of the Lord and you will be spoken of as ministers of our God and you will eat the wealth of nations in, and their riches. in their riches you will boast. Instead of your, listen, instead of your shame, you will have a double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land and everlasting joy will be theirs. And David says to Mephibosheth, I am going to give you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. He thought it was gone, lost which didn't really matter because he was a cripple living in someone else's house in Lodabar, and now he's a cripple before the king about to be killed, and suddenly he finds out. Love condescends to remove all shame, and love condescends to restore the inheritance. To restore the inheritance. Look at verse nine. Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. It is all for him. Love condescends to restore the inheritance. Peter picks up on this beautifully when he says, 1 Peter 1 verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Afflicted ones, crippled in spirit, Lame of heart, listen to me. You need to receive the grace of the king because it is by his grace that all your shame is removed. It is by his grace that all our inheritance is restored. And inheritance, this inheritance for Mephibosheth wasn't just money to live on. This is honor, it's security, it's position, it is standing in the community. So, uh, immediately now, Mephibosheth, who was a nobody, is somebody in the community of Israel. He goes from nothing to significance. Because now, he's the inheritor of all his grandfather's land. Verse 10 continues. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Number three, love condescends to reserve a place at the table. 
He removes all our shame. He, he gives us an eternal inheritance and he reserves a place at the table. Mephibosheth, again, presents himself as a slave in verse eight. He calls himself your servant before David. He has no idea that he is now about to feast at the table of the king. Jesus said in Luke 12, 37, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself. That is the master will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Dear brothers and sisters, please hear me. It is time to let go of lameness. It is time for the people of Jesus Christ to understand that he has removed all shame, that he has restored inheritance, and that you have a place at the table of the Lord. This, this verse is among the most stunning to me in the entire Bible because I cannot imagine kicking back at the table with family and friends while Jesus comes around and says, do you need a little more, Rick? Can I fill your plate for you? Is there something else you'd like me to bring? I mean, that's just, what? This is absolutely mind-blowing. This is the love of God. That is, that is grace. In fact, right now, even now, Jesus is going door to door, knocking on the homes of Christians. That's the context when he says in Revelation 3.20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He's already set the table in the presence of your enemies, right? He's already offering to feed with you and to feast with you and to offer you food of his word and the covering of his table. And there's one more thing here, by the way, did you catch it? Verse 11, Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Number four, love condescends to redeem us with adoption. Again, there's something missing when the follower of Jesus Christ says, oh, no, but what if I, if I didn't do this or, is God gonna be angry with, how have I, and this, this unwarranted fear, perfect love casts out fear, the Bible says. And the fact is he has adopted you. He's adopted me, we are sons and we are daughters. Romans chapter eight, verse 14, all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay, so you're asthmatic no more because you're led by the spirit. You have the breath of God. If you, if you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. We belong to him, we're adopted children. And I'll tell you something about adopted children because I've got four of them and I love them. I love them every bit as much as every one of my three biological kids who I absolutely love. And I didn't know that it would be like that, to be honest, when Cheryl and I first made a decision to adopt. Actually, I didn't make a decision. I was baited and switched into it by the Lord. But when, when we made... <laughs> 
the decision. When we, okay, Lord, we'll do this. I had no idea. I really wondered, what's it gonna be like? And we get, before we even got them home, I, I think I may have told you the story, but I remember getting out of the car in uh, Accra, Ghana, at Beacon House Orphanage, getting out of the car, and Honor Marie came flying out of the front door. She knew who we were. We had had some conversation, and, and we'd seen, you know, been able to talk with them. She came flying out of the door and jumped on me like a long-lost daughter, nearly broke my back. I still have some pain from it a <laughs> little bit. And I'll tell you what, from that moment, before she even jumped on me, when I saw her coming out of the door, I loved her like all of my kids. Naomi, David, Chris. I just, I adore these kids. And, and I'm only saying, I'm not saying, well, Rick loves his kids. Yeah, okay, great. But I'm just saying there's no difference. There is no difference between a biological child and an adopted child. And what the Bible tells us is the love of God he has for his one and only son, Jesus, is the love of God that he has for you. We're adopted. This is, this is an amazing story of amazing grace. David with Mephibosheth is a snapshot in time. It's a picture of the greater grace of God and his love for you and for me and his condescending love that redeems us as adopted children. And verse 12, Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem He's now in the capital city, no longer in Lodabar, and he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. He still couldn't walk. But I'll tell you what, this guy could run in his spirit. This guy knew acceptance, and he knew belonging, and he was part of the deal now. David gave him, gave him his life. It's a story of amazing grace. But don't forget this. The motivation for David to show this kind of grace to Mephibosheth was the grace that God had already shown to David. Grace begets grace. Do you understand the extent of God's grace for you? Because when you do, you can't help but extend grace to other people. It becomes what, you have to do it. I'm not saying that you're gonna do it perfectly. I certainly don't. <laughs> but it makes you wanna love people and it makes you wanna show grace to people when you realize the grace of God for you. And if you don't know the extent of God's grace for you, first thing you need to do right now is receive it. Say, yes, Lord, I receive your grace. Yes, on my own, I'm lame. Yes, on my own, I'm, I'm a spiritual asthmatic. I can barely breathe. But you tell me that you died for me. You promise me that your spirit will reside in me. And therefore, I am simply going to say, yes, Lord. I receive your grace for me. And once you receive that grace, as David did in the Davidic covenant, then what do you do? You turn around and start extending that grace to people around you. Not because you have to, but because you want to, because you have already received the kindness of God. Show it to someone else. Chapter 10. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died and Hanun, his son, became king in his place. And then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun. Again, the word is grace. It's chesed. 
I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. And so David sent some of his servants to console him concerning his father. David is just brimming with grace here. I mean, he's going, I've been shown kindness by God. Everybody's being nice to me now. This is so overwhelming. I gotta find people to be nice to. So he finds Mephibosheth, and then he hears that this Hanun, uh, his father's dead. Ammonite, okay, so this is an enemy of Israel, but his father was cool to me, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna send a delegation. You know, just, just with some kind words of consolation. Have, have you ever done that? Have you ever offered a kindness to someone just because, you know, I, I just, I've been shown so much kindness, I wanna show it to someone else. But the moment you do it, they slap the kindness away. I think many of you know how that feels. You're just trying to be nice, and someone spurns it. Well, verse two continues. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants in order to search the city to spy it out and overthrow it? Oh, cynical world. So many people have such a hard time accepting kindness simply for kindness sake. Someone just wants to be nice. Well, they can't just be being nice. There's gotta be a scheme. You know, there's gotta be an, an angle or an exploitation behind this kindness that has been ostensibly offered. Oh, I know you're saying it just to be nice. There's something, you want something. I wonder how the Lord feels when he extends the kindness of his grace and the world spurns it when he offers up Jesus on the cross and the world turns against it. John 1.10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not even know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. The kindness of God offered this world. I, I can't even imagine what it feels like to be Jesus and have that kindness rejected. Number five, love condescends, but resisted causes defensiveness. And we've talked about this, that this is what happens. When people resist the grace of God, they become suspicious, defensive, and even aggressive toward Christians. That's why. That, that is the full explanation as to why someone gets angry when you just wanna talk about Jesus. If you want to talk with someone about Tom Cruise, rarely are they going to get angry unless they just don't like his movies, you know? You want to talk about, to someone about the Queen of England and her long reign, people aren't going to be like, don't talk to me about that. But you bring up the name of Jesus, and for some people, it just is so upsetting and offensive. Why? Because this love that has condescended to them, when they resist it, they become defensive. That is the nature of things. Verse four, <laughs> so Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far up as their hips and sent them away. This is exactly what you think it is. Hips here is a nice modest way of referring, uh, referring to their bare backsides in the Hebrew. That their, 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 their robes and their tunics get cut off at the waist their beards cut off halfway and they're sent out that way. 
So they got no coverage. You can say these guys are the butt of the joke. I couldn't get away with that. I had to share that. You know, it reminds you, if you go into battle, be sure to protect the rear. See, they're now heading out. David's men are sent home, truly with a half beard buzzing and a full Monty pantsing. That's what's happened. And I'm trying to paint this picture for you. And, and by the way, when I say stupid jokes and, and puns and stuff, that is primarily so you understand the difference between the word of God and the word of Rick. Okay? okay? So you know what is the word of God and what is not here. Listen, as humiliating as having their robes cut off at the hips, it was far more humiliating to have their beards half shaved off. In religious culture and as spiritual men, the beard of an Israelite was his honor. And to have it half shaved was an absolute disgrace and a greater shame. And verse five says, when they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, by, by the way, do, do you see the parallel picture here? The king sends his servants and his servants are mistreated. Now, I'm not gonna go there tonight, but Jesus tells a parable very similar how, you know, the landover owner sent his servants and the servants were mistreated and beaten and sent back and sent more servants and then some of the servants were actually killed and then he said, I'll send my own son and his son goes and they say, let's kill him and take the inheritance and it's a whole picture of Israel's response to Jesus. But we even have a parallel here. King David is trying to send consolation Love condescending to this Hanun of the Ammonites. And Hanun treats his servants so horribly. So then David goes to them and says, the king says, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. Nothing will ignite David's ire like this kind of crude treatment of his men. But note this, note this in verse five. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them. What this means in the Hebrew is that he himself goes to meet them. He doesn't say, well, send some people to go, you know, take them some chinos, you know, something they can wear, have someone stop at Walmart, pick up a pair of pants for them so that they, no. David himself leaves palace and Jerusalem and travels out to meet them. He, he gets as far as Jericho when he meets up with them. How amazing that the king condescends to go meet up with his humiliated servants. And Jesus does that with you and with me. This is the heart of a shepherd. David gets them lodging there at Jericho and says, just stay here until your beards are fully grown back in and then come on back and serve at the palace as you would have before. No doubt no doubt in my mind that David made sure that they stayed in Jericho with full pay and provision while their beards grew because a shepherd does that for his people because a king like that really cares. This is what the son of David does. He meets you in your humiliation. He shows up when the world is unkind. He's present in your persecution. And he comes to you and he comes to me to comfort us and to console us and to encourage us and to again take away that which is shameful. Now, I, I don't know why this keeps coming up, that this concept of our persecution and his presence 
that this idea of our you know, difficulty and humiliation as followers of Jesus in this world. Over and over, we've been coming back to this. I think it comes up for me to say, don't be afraid, but be alert. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you are dealing with this right now. I, you don't have to raise your hand, but maybe you are in a place right now where your spiritual life is, you're in a place of humiliation because you're following Jesus. He'll meet you there. Maybe you're being persecuted simply for trying to do what you know is morally right before your God and, and you're being taken out for that. Listen, John chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you, he who has my commandments. Literally, he is who, is who is having my commandments and keeping them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Have you had Jesus disclose himself to you? This happened the other night. Um, Cheryl and I had been, we were sitting on the couch, and we were talking with our friends, and we were talking about the chosen. I'm not gonna go off on it tonight, but we were talking about the chosen, and, and I was saying how, you know, my challenge was I don't want another persona of Jesus. And my friend Jim said, well, well what, what is your picture of Jesus, Rick? It's a great question. And I kind of went, I don't know. I don't have, but I know him. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, it's like Peter said, though you don't see him, you know him. And I know him. I know Jesus. I don't, I don't want someone else to, to take his place in, in, in the vision in my mind. When I close my eyes during worship, I don't see a, a particular color of brown eyes and a certain length of hair and, and the beard and the mustache and, and the, you know, the, the Jewish nose. I, I don't see that. But I see Jesus. And Jesus said, I'll come to you. I know what he means by that. And, and if you sit there and go, well, I don't then you need to just spend more time with him because you will. I promise you, you will. This, this is not an if, this is, this is an absolute that he will come to you. He says, I, I will meet you. I will disclose myself to you. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus said, anyone who loves me, he will be keeping my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me, saying, this is how ironclad this is. This is the word of the Father. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, it's the Father's. These things, he says, I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But listen, listen, but the helper, the comforter, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. He'll bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. If you're in the place where you're hurting a bit, or where you're feeling humiliated, like David sent and met with these servants, Jesus will come to you and meet with you to console, to comfort, to encourage you. That's his promise. 
It's what he does. And don't think for a moment that God will not avenge the mistreatment of his servants. He's got that. There will be perfect justice. You don't have to sit there and ruminate on it. Boy, I hope they really get there. You don't have to. You can just continue to show kindness because God's gonna take care of that. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. You remember this verse for it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God? We've talked about that recently, but then he says, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So if you're in that place of humiliation or persecution because of your faith, because you're simply following Jesus, he sins and he comes to you and he has got it. I think about the saints who are gonna come out of the great tribulation. Those who will really know suffering, I believe, paralleling the martyrdoms and suffering that were, were going on in the first century, or we could even say paralleling the martyrdoms that are happening right now around the world. We have it pretty easy here. But we're told in Revelation 6, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. There is more humiliation to come there is more persecution to come. There is more martyrdom to come. I don't know if it's gonna come on us before Jesus comes to get us, but if it does, don't be afraid. Just be alert. Jesus will send and come to you. He will see us through. In the meantime, while the king is truly coming and will avenge, there's something else that he's given us. We need each other. Verse six. Now, when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, in other words, the entire nation were a bunch of stinkers. Thank you. The sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans from Bethrehob and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Maacah with uh, 1,000 men and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. By the way, I'll just point out to you, um, this is one of those chronological things. It's like, when did this happen? And I can tell you, I, I think I know when this happened. It happened afterwards. That's how chapter 10 starts. So it happens after the Mephibosheth situation, after the Davidic covenant situation. This is later. This is after the fact. But some of you, if, if, you're, if you're paying attention to your open Bible, might go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Of the airmans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers. But if I go right back to chapter eight, verse four, it says, David captured from him 17,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. From where? Zobah. So we've already been told that David captured 20,000 foot soldiers over here, but now there are 20,000 foot soldiers back at Boba, or <laughs> Boba, that's T, back at Zobah. What's the deal here? And the only thing that I can suggest, because I wasn't there and I don't know, is that David had captured the 20,000 foot soldiers and let them go. 
and they're all back at Zoba. And there's a problem here because if you let the defeated enemy go, he will return again. He will fight another day. But, but hold that thought. So, so they all gather together, 20,000, 1,000, 12,000. So 33,000 there. Verse seven, when David heard, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. Sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Aramans of Zoba and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maacah were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Aramans. And the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, okay, if the Aramans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Verse 11, I have this written in my, uh, in the side notes here, I have written back to back. This is a back to back military strategy. They're in front of us, they're behind us. Therefore, half of us are gonna face this way and fight this way. The other half are gonna fight that way. And either one, if we have a problem, you got my back or I've got your back. That's what Joab is saying. Be strong, verse 12, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city, and then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. So both sides just took off. Why? Because Joab and Abishai and all the people of Israel were back to back. They had each other. They were together. This is a great strategy, an important strategy for us to understand when the enemy has you surrounded or when the enemy has you feeling like you're surrounded. You need your brothers and sisters. You need the rest of the army. You need to know that somebody has you're back because Satan loves to play on fears of vulnerability. You know, I got you alone now. Nobody knows about this sin. Nobody knows about this problem. You're on your own and there's no way out of this. And suddenly, guess what? We're crippled. We can't breathe. This is why it's so important what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter four, verse one. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You need each other in this world. And number six in our notes, love condescends to revive fellowship. Love condescends to revive fellowship. Paul was a POW, right? He's a prisoner of war himself. He knew firsthand the indispensable value of unity in the fellowship of believers. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy, every one of the churches in Asia has deserted me. Have you ever felt deserted by the church? Now I ask the question, I don't wanna encourage you to go, yeah, that church I used to attend, or yeah, those people over there, they, they really cut me out. Don't start having a bad taste in your mouth toward the church. We need each other. 
And you may have had a difficult situation in a previous fellowship. Maybe you've had one in this fellowship. But this comes to remind us that we are called to have each other's back and to love each other. And if I have not loved you with the grace of God in Christ Jesus, then you need to call me on it so that I can love better. And if you have not loved me, then I need to, as a brother, come to you and go, look, we need each other in these last days. Because you know what? Side note, there is so much anger and hatred and vitriol in the world. Because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of most is growing cold. Didn't Jesus say that's exactly what would happen? I flipped on the news for five minutes this morning, and this is not a statement of Democrat or Republican, but listen, I turned it on for like five minutes and I was watching the House hearing and they had Merrick Garland sitting there before the House and I watched for five minutes and I had to turn it off. It made me sick because of the way these people are shouting each other down and angrily fighting against each other. And the same thing happened a few years back when uh, Trump was being you know, uh, impeached by the Democrat, I mean, I, both things, it's just all this anger and hatred and meanness and our side versus your side and we're right and you're wrong and it's the same thing back and forth and I looked at it and I went, click. I need to be in a place where I know I can be loved and I can love. And this kindness of God, this grace of God, that's ours to give this world. That's how we are to be and it doesn't matter if you live in Washington, D.C. or Washington State. And it doesn't matter if you're into politics or you work at the refinery or anything else. Your call as a follower of Jesus is to show grace and the love of God. That is ours to give the world. And what we see coming out of so many other places is not the love of God. Listen, what this means, having each other's back, this love that condescends to revive fellowship in and among us, it means we pray for each other. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We need to be praying for the other churches. The churches in Oak Harbor and in Anacortes that are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters. We need to be praying for the church around the world, praying for believers, even if that believer disagrees with me on this issue. okay. I'm still gonna pray for my brother in the Lord. We are also, secondly, this unity is not just pray for each other, but we're accountable to one another. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. We've all been through it. We all know it. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The grace of God is a way of escape. But guess what? So is confession to a brother or a sister. How do I get out of the sin that's entangling me? I go to a brother or sister for accountability. How do I keep from the sin? Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two, that tells us so easily entangles us. I walk with a brother or a sister. You ever been out walking with someone and they go, oh, watch out there. And there's a branch and you step over it because they pointed it out to you. You ever been out walking by yourself and you didn't see the branch? We have it on video. <laughs> We're accountable one to another. We pray for each other. And accountability is not a word of judgment. It is a word of love that's primary, we are to love each other. 
as Christ loved us, so we are to love one another. And to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members what? Suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's the way it works. Paul says that's how it works in your body, and we are the body of Christ. Well, verse 15, so they stand back to back. They're strong together. The enemy flees in both directions because they're standing together. Verse 15, when the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. Boy, they, don't they quit? When is the enemy gonna stop? He'll stop when he's defeated. He'll stop when he is completely decimated. But until then, Satan is prowling around the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom to devour. He's still working. He regathers, he reorients his troops, his forces, and he is always looking for that opportune time. So this is exactly what the Arameans do. They run away, run away, flee, and now they're regathering for the next war. Verse 16, and Hadadets are sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river and they came to Halam and Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadadetzer, led them. Now, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled from before Israel. David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel. <laughs> we'll make peace now. Well, yeah, because you lost. And they made peace with Israel and served them, so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. When did Israel's enemies make peace with them? It's a simple question. When did Israel's enemies make peace with them? After they were defeated. After they, I mean, we just read that, you know. They lost, so now they're ready to try and make peace. History teaches us something. This is not politically correct to say, so listen up. I know you get excited when I say that. <laughs> History teaches us there has never been a lasting peace without a definite winner and a defeated loser. If you want to have peace, that's how it's done. I'm just talking historically here. You know, Hitler didn't go, well, all right, let's sign a treaty and we'll be cool. No, he committed suicide. And his forces were wiped out and driven back. And there is never a, a peace without a definite winner and a defeated loser. Chapter 10 begins with David on a kindness run. You know, he's just giving kindness everywhere. So it begins with him offering kindness as from God, and it ends with him giving the Ammonites and Arameans a serious whooping. Begins with kindness. It ends with war. And then there was peace. Does that sound familiar? Begins with grace. Son of David came and brought grace. We're in the age of grace, kindness to a world of death, a world of lameness, a world of asthmatics, 
a world that, 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 that cannot survive the way we're going, will not survive the way we're going, Jesus came and brought the kindness of God, grace. And we're in that age of grace. Some receive it, you're here tonight. No doubt, because you've received the grace of God in Jesus. Some disregard it. Others reject it outright. Jesus started with grace. He will come in judgment. And when he comes, it will be as the warrior king. I know we're gonna get to Revelation in December, but I just can't wait. Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven open to behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness, he prances through the lilies. That's not what it says. <laughs> he judges and wages War, this is the second coming of Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And, and he has a name written on himself, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And I always have to clarify, not his blood. Not now, not at this point. His blood brought our grace. But now as he comes back in a robe dipped in blood, this is the blood of all those who reject and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, and on his thigh, which would be on the corner of his robe, the kanap, right there, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus, in his return, in his coming, he is going to soundly thrash the enemy. He is gonna wipe out all the opposing enemy of Satan and all those who have bought into the Antichrist lie. He is going to have Satan bound and cast into the pit for a thousand years. Antichrist is done. And then there will be peace. There will be peace on this planet Revelation 20 goes on to describe unlike anything this planet has ever known. It's gonna be like Eden all over. Under the perfect righteous rule of Jesus Christ out of Jerusalem, the son of David who came in kindness at first will come in war to make peace. Revelation chapter 20 verse six says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And so what we see in this, in this passage tonight, beginning with grace, grace extended, it ends with war and an enemy wiped out. Now, I, I'm gonna tell you just one more thing tonight and we're done. I would love to close the book of 2 Samuel for good right here. After chapter 10, just stop right there and let's go on over to Revelation. Let's move on to the next book. And, and we are, we're gonna close it for tonight. But the rest of 2 Samuel, the war, the conflict, the clashes, it's all gonna come home to roost. Every fight, every battle, every issue pretty much to the end of 2 Samuel now is gonna be in David's own house. And there's a reason for it. Chapter 10 finds David at his absolute strongest. Chapter 11, where we're gonna go Sunday, will find David at his absolute weakest. Why? 
He's already begun a practice that is gonna tag him. It's no wiser actually for us today than it was for him 3,000 years ago. Let me show you what his practice was that's already started in here. Verse seven of chapter 10, look back at this. When David heard, that is all the the 33,000 of the enemy gathered up for war. When David heard, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. He didn't go. He just sent the army. He stays back. Down in verse 17, it says, when it was told to David that they were regathering to fight again, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. So now he's fighting. He realizes this, this is a big threat. This isn't just to send someone out, dispatch a few guys. I gotta go fight. And David goes and fights and they are utterly victorious and completely wipe out the enemy And the enemy makes peace and becomes a vassal state to Israel because David stands up. David fights. Look at verse one of chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. And that's where the problem begins. Chapter 11, he's gonna meet Bathsheba. I've let others fight for me, you know? So why not do it again? I'll just chill in Jerusalem. You know, the early church did the same thing. The early church started out, Jesus said, you know, wait, wait in in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. Acts chapter one, verse eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. You know what happens with the early church? And no judgment on them. This is just typical human behavior. The first eight chapters of the book of Acts, they stay in Jerusalem. They don't go to Judea, or Samaria, or the remotest parts of the earth. They just stay put, because they're having church. Church is good. You know, we're all together in this place, and it's growing, it's mega church time. 3,000 on the first day gets up to 5,000, ultimately 10,000. Man, it's growing by leaps and bounds in Jerusalem. So what happens? A persecution hits. God allows it. You might say God causes it. Persecution breaks out against the church and the church finally will break out of Jerusalem and spread out, leaving their huddle. Acts 8, verse one, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout the regions, guess what, of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. When we really understand the grace of God and his kindness, we know, and this is number seven if you're keeping track, love condescends to reinforce courage. Love condescends to reinforce courage. Courage. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove in vain. I labored even more, even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. And this is another principle of grace that is huge. It reinforces courage. The more I understand the grace of God, the more courageous I am to go outside Jerusalem, to go fight the battles in Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. What we've seen here is kindness, humiliation and and courage, but through it all, stay engaged in the fight. Keep fighting, don't hold back, 
until the enemy is finally put down and peace reigns. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, right? We have the spirit of God. We have his word. And we can love because we know the love of God in Christ Jesus, amen? Father, we pray for a comprehension such as we can of your grace. I guess that really is the place to start, Father, that we all, to a person, would walk out of here tonight recognizing that we are saved by grace and grace alone. There is nothing we have done that is greater than your grace. There is nothing we can do that could earn even a drop of your grace. So Father, help us to give up our lame belief that we can do something or that something we've done could keep us from you. Forgive us of our sins. Help us to receive your grace and your mercy here and now. And Lord, when difficulties come and humiliations come, help us to know that you will come to us, to trust that though we don't see you, we know you. And Father, give us the strength and courage to fight and to stand up for you as the purpose of our entire lives until you come. And until this is all said and done, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.